Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Later this hour, Mary Snyder lost a friend to pancreatic cancer. His death was likely preventable, but he made choices that made it inevitable. Snyder promised him that she would share his story, and she's done that in the book Moose Fart. I'll talk with her. But first, Claire Richmond has been living with chronic illness and pain for more than two decades, but it took 19 years for her to get an accurate diagnosis. She has acute hepatic porphyria, a genetic disorder that can cause acute symptom attacks, attacks that can be life-threatening. Although there is no cure, getting an accurate diagnosis has dramatically changed Richmond's life. She's a writer, writing for a number of publications, and is launching her own Substack newsletter, details at daringlyclaire.com. She is is also an advocate for those who live with rare diseases, and she is with me now. Hello, Claire. Claire, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me this well, morning. <laughs> thank you so much for being here. And Claire, I do, I want to start with uh, your first experiences with this illness in your teen years, which started with out-of-the-blue symptomatic attacks that you really didn't understand. Can you tell us what happened? Yes, absolutely. So what I didn't know about this disease is that it is triggered by hormone changes. So I was just in a perfect position as a teenager starting to go through puberty to develop these attacks. Um, while they are uh, genetic, we didn't know anyone in my family who had experienced something like this before. So we were just completely in the dark. We did not know what was going on. My medical provider at the time um, eventually diagnosed me with fibromyalgia. So here I was, a 14-year-old with fibromyalgia and just really not satisfied that that's what was going on, but really not sure how to proceed at that point. What kind of symptoms did you experience when you were 14? Yeah, so I was... Um, I had a lot of vomiting and nausea, a lot of muscle pain. I remember spending a week or two in bed um, having to miss a lot of school. I had to drop out of my extracurricular activities of dance. Um, it was just a really upsetting time of my life when you're 14. Um, you know, it impacts your friendships and your social life. It's not something you expect to be dealing with. Yeah, and... You had this first attack. You got the diagnosis of fibromyalgia. What happened after that? Because uh, at that point, you did understand that you were living with a chronic illness, but that wasn't the chronic illness you were living with. Right. So I went several years, you know, looking for answers. Uh, the thing about acute porphyria is that the attacks come and go, right? So I didn't have symptoms every single day um, 
during that period before I finally got answers. So I would go, you know, in college a year or two, maybe without having an acute episode. And then lo and behold, I would get one, show up in the emergency room. And by the time I would get to my doctor later that week, I was starting to feel better already. Um, The thing with acute porphyria too is that unless you test for that very specific disease, you're not going to see it come up on a test. So I was testing normal um, again and again and again. And my doctors were just not sure what was going on. Tell me about that, because, of course, here you are experiencing terrible symptoms, extreme pain intermittently and going to the doctor because, of course, you felt like you needed help, but they couldn't figure out really what was wrong with you. What was that experience like? You know, eventually um, you would go to the doctor and you would try to find a different opinion. So I would go to a different person each time and I would get so excited. This person's going to have an answer. They have an idea. They're curious about something different. Um, And it kind of became a roller coaster where I got my hopes up. The test would be done. I would wait a week or two. I would get the results back and they would be normal. And I would just be sent on my way. So after many times, after many doctors, I just started to really um, fear that I, I needed to just kind of hide this part of myself. You know, it didn't happen all of the time. So, so maybe, you know, maybe it would go away eventually. Did you blame yourself? I thought that there was something that I was doing to cause my symptoms. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, after years and years of kind of having these secret episodes in the bathroom at night, um, you know, I didn't talk to my doctors about this for a long time. Um, And I really feared, I got to the point where I was in my early 30s, that I thought I truly was making it up. I thought I truly was doing it to myself. Wow. And that's something that a lot of people who live with chronic illness start to feel, especially with a chronic illness that is so difficult to diagnose. As you have engaged in this community of people living with rare, complex diseases, is that something that you hear from a lot of people that they thought maybe they were crazy? I do hear that. Um, I also hear from a lot of people that say, no, I knew something was wrong. And, it, you know, something that really, really helps if you're somebody that's going through this is having someone in your corner who believes in you. You know, whether it's a parent or a partner or a friend, you know, somebody to remind you that, no, I'm in your corner and I've seen what you're going through and this is not in your head. Like, it really does help to have somebody to stand by you. You know, when I was growing up, I was very independent. You know, I went away from from my family when I went to school. Um, And when I started uh, living, you know, and working as an adult, I didn't have family nearby either, or, or these, you know, close friends I've grown up with that I could confide in. So I think that was something that could have shortened my journey for sure. Did you feel at you, you worked with so many different medical professionals, did you feel like there were medical professionals who just didn't believe you? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I saw well over 30 medical professionals in five different states when I was going on this journey, Um, especially when it got to the point I for about a six-month period in 2016, I was just kind of on this hospital tour of the greater Midwest. I was going from hospital bed to hospital bed, and I would be discharged, still symptomatic, because these doctors, they didn't believe me. And when, you know, you kind of get diagnosed with a mental health disorder after a while when they can't find an answer, that's kind of the default. And that's really sad, you know, because um, it's actually not very common for people to make up pain like this either. You know, why would I be wanting to give up my life, you know, in my early 30s to sit in a hospital bed. It just didn't make sense to me. I didn't know what was going on. But at the time, I was a marathon runner. I had just started a new romantic relationship. It was the last place that I wanted to be. You talk about being a marathon runner. And I get the sense that you felt like if you just worked hard enough and did all the things that we are socialized to believe will help us take control of our health, that maybe you could overcome this. And I know that you love to run, and I certainly relate to that. But also, was that part of what drove you as as a runner and as somebody who pursued fitness pretty relentlessly, thinking, I can overcome this if I just work hard enough? Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. I think that's another reason why I just decided I was going to stop talking to doctors. They weren't taking me seriously. I felt like I was being dismissed and I was going to take matters into my own hands. You know, I knew what was quote unquote healthy, you know, so I decided to change my diet. I decided to up my fitness routine and I was going to beat this thing, whatever it was, you know, in my own hands. uh, And that went spectacularly wrong, (laughs) as we know, um, because that's what absolutely ended me in the hospital in 2016. And it wasn't just your physical exertions. You had also decided to embrace the keto diet, which is very, very popular, was very popular then, is still very popular now, is a low-carbohydrate diet And that turned out to be exactly the opposite of what your body needed. Yeah. So it turns out if you have acute porphyria, you actually do need carbohydrates. Um, It helps your body uh, process the enzyme. Uh, And I, you know, that's not what you hear, right? Um, Popular wellness media would lead you to believe that carbohydrates are bad. Are the root of all evil. (laughs) Yeah. So you had been pushing yourself so hard and trying so hard to take control of your life. And that is one of the things that that spurred this acute attack in 2016 that landed you in the hospital. You even went through a period of time where you were paralyzed? Yes. Yeah. My... uh... Porphyria will cause paralysis, and for me, it was causing paralysis of my uh, colon. So 
We are going to have to take a short break here in just a moment. And this is actually the attack that led to your diagnosis. I I can only imagine that thinking about that incredibly dark and frightening time is difficult. But that was the, the moment just before you actually found out what was going on with your body. So, Claire, we are going to to take a pause here. We'll be back in just a few minutes. I'm talking with Claire Richmond, who's been living with chronic illness and pain for more than two decades. It took her 19 years to get an accurate diagnosis of a rare disease. It's acute hepatic porphyria, a genetic disorder that can cause acute symptom attacks, attacks that can actually be life-threatening. In a moment, we will talk about that moment where she got the accurate diagnosis and how that has changed her life. She is a writer and an advocate for those who live with rare diseases. And you can find out more about her work at DaringlyClaire.com. That's DaringlyClaire.com. Then in just about 15 minutes, I'll talk with Mary Snyder, who fulfilled a promise to a friend by sharing his story in the book Moosebart. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion including Above and Beyond Cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. With me right now is Claire Richmond. She is a writer and an advocate for those who live with rare diseases. She has lived with chronic illness and pain for more than two decades of her life, but it took 19 years for her to get an accurate diagnosis. She has acute hepatic porphyria, which is a genetic disorder that can cause acute symptom attacks, attacks that can be life-threatening. And just before the break, Claire, we were talking about the severe attack that led finally to your proper diagnosis. And you had seen so many different doctors over the years in this final uh, attack, not final attack, because obviously this is something that you continue to live with. But just before your diagnosis, you had been so severely ill and in the hospital for so long, going from hospital to hospital. Claire, what finally led to your diagnosis? I was fortunate enough to have a resident on my team, on my medical team, who had recently read about acute porphyria in a a textbook while studying for an exam. And and this is the kind of question that would get asked on an exam really to trip somebody up because it's such a rare disease, right? It is, yes. Something that you'd never actually expect to see in real life. (laughs) Wow. And so he decided to run a test, and it's a relatively simple test. Tell me about that. I had to pee in a cup. And and I really couldn't believe after all those years, that's all it was. Wow. So... Tell me about when you actually got the diagnosis. What happened? He told me, I will give you a phone call. I will discharge you and I will give you a phone call if this comes back positive, but it's not going to. So don't expect to ever hear from me again. I wish you the best. So I'm home a couple days later and I'm on the couch 
and I get a phone call and it's the resident. And he says, I can't believe I'm calling you. I have your test results and they are positive. Wow. What was your reaction? I will never forget that moment. I felt so validated um, and angry and sad. And I just remember this heavy blanket of shame being removed off of my shoulders. I wasn't making it up. Something was actually wrong with me. And I was finally getting answers. You say you felt angry. Who were you angry with? Oh, um, so many things. I think, you know, the medical system uh, in in large part, I think I kind of got lost. Um, I was angry at myself for not trusting in my body. So you get this diagnosis and... I can imagine you're obviously a very well-educated, very intelligent woman that you immediately went to work researching this disease. It is very rare. Tell me about it. How how rare is this? Yeah. So one in approximately 20,000 people have the genetic mutation, but less than 1% of those individuals will ever get a symptom. Wow. And you did go on and have a genetic test done that that definitively shows that you have this genetic mutation, right? Correct. Yes. There is no cure for acute hepatic porphyria. What have you learned about the disease that has allowed you to at least somewhat take control of your life? Yeah. So I'm incredibly lucky. 95% of rare diseases have no treatment at all. Porphyria, acute porphyria actually does. We have two treatments. One is to prevent attacks, and one is to treat the attack itself when it's occurring. Um, So I have tried both treatments with varying degrees of success. Um, And also, honestly, uh, the more I learn about my body, the more I realize what it responds to. And there's a list of triggers um, that will make me sick and will put me into an attack. And I can really live a life of caution and just do my best to avoid those things. Before you got that diagnosis, the description of how you lived your life, it feels like you just kind of were beating your head against a wall where you kept trying to move forward to take control of your career and your health. And this disease just wouldn't allow you to do that. How has life changed after the diagnosis? You know, it just connected so many dots. Like I said, it was validating. I feel like I had a sense of self-worth again. I could rebuild that trust with my body. Um, I all of a sudden knew exactly what to do when I had a symptom. Um, I knew how to speak for myself and what to say. I knew what was happening in my body. All of a sudden, I could meet a community of people that were also going through this. And that's made a huge difference in my life. So many people who are are living with rare diseases, their lives have been transformed by the internet and our ability to connect with people who don't live close by and our ability to put in search terms that, that lead us to other people. Can you tell me about the acute porphyria community? Yes, I'd love to. Um, 
We are on social media just, you know, like everyone else. And that's really where it started for me. Um, And then I attended um, a conference, met a couple patients in person for the first time. And that that really transformed my life. Um, I feel like they're some of my best friends and I may never have even met them in person before, but we talk all the time. We trust in each other. We ask for advice. We share these lessons learned. Um, Social media was where it started. Also, there are um, patient nonprofits um, that help connect as well. I'm talking with Claire Richmond. She is a writer and an advocate. Her website is daringlyclaire.com, and she lives in Des Moines. She also is living with a disease, a rare disease, called acute hepatic porphyria. And, Claire, you have been writing about your experiences with this illness and for people who also have the same illness, but also for, for other people who are living with rare diseases. And you recently published a column about your relationship with your physicians. I mean, now that you know what you're dealing with, you've been able to establish some really deep relationships with good practitioners. What have you learned about developing those relationships? So what I've learned is that my, let's see, I, I think I grew up thinking I could never ask my doctor a question. I could never doubt what my doctor said. And that just wasn't going to work for me when I got this rare disease. I needed to be able to work with someone. Um, So when I look for a new doctor, I look for someone who's curious and someone who's willing to be collaborative. Not every doctor will work for me and will work with me, but I've been able to build really successful, beautiful relationships where we're making decisions together. And that's really important if you have a complex disorder. Well, and I I question the language that I, I used there when I said good practitioners, because I can imagine that there are many great doctors who could have missed this illness because doctors can't know everything about everything. And this is a rare disorder. When you think about all of those interactions that you had over the years, and I'm sure some were good and some were bad. Do you do you second guess moments? Do you think about times when maybe if you had felt empowered to advocate for yourself that maybe you could have gotten that diagnosis earlier? Yes, absolutely. Um, if I had just stuck with a couple doctors that were willing to kind of be my sidekick, I, I think I, I absolutely would have gotten answers sooner. In writing for other people who live with rare diseases, what are you hoping that you can share from your experience that will help others that are going through a similar journey? You know, there's so many people that live with these mysterious symptoms in our in our country right now, who are looking for answers, who are hearing it's all in your head, everything's normal. And I just, I wish for them that they don't doubt themselves, that they continue to seek a second, a third, a fourth opinion, that they continue to advocate for themselves. But it's not easy. It takes a lot of mental energy. Take a break if you need one. Grab a friend if you can. Don't go alone. Don't go alone. That's an interesting uh, piece of advice because I think that that's 
that's a very private thing to to take someone with you to a, a doctor's appointment. That that makes you very vulnerable, especially if they're not necessarily a family member. So why why do you feel that's important? There have been times where I feel if I had somebody there with me, this the appointment would have gone differently. Um, Especially there are some appointments where I will bring my partner because he's a man and I just think the appointment is going to go better. Um, Sometimes I feel as though the doctors uh, treat me differently because or have in the past treated me differently because I am a woman, especially the nature of my symptoms being around hormonal fluctuations. You recently contributed to a really lovely column in the Washington Post, What Disabled People Know About Making Better New Year's Resolutions. And uh, it's a column published by Amanda Morris, but she interviewed you and and asked for a contribution. And um, you talked about how your illness has taught you to approach goal setting and resolutions with a gentler mindset. Tell me about what you've learned from that. Yes. Um, I used to feed my inner perfectionist every single year around this time. I would write these lofty resolutions that pushed my body into unhealthy places, whether it was running or losing a couple pounds or what have you. Um, now when I think about intentions for the year, it's based on how I feel and not what I want to accomplish. That sounds like excellent advice for someone living with a disability, but it also sounds like excellent advice for anyone <laughs> who is living today. I mean, uh, do you feel like in, in some ways the, the challenges that you have faced just help you understand life better than, than people who haven't faced those kinds of challenges? 100% charity. I think porphyria has given me such a gift, and that's one of the biggest for sure. Looking to the future, um, you're launching a Substack column. You've been writing columns. You have been also trying to take steps toward figuring out how much you can work and what you can do um, living with this illness. What are your hopes for the future? What are my hopes for the future? Um, I want to continue uplifting and amplifying the voices of our community, not just the porphyria community and not just the rare disease community, but people who have chronic illness. There is so much that our society can learn from people. And I hope that my Substack can begin to do, to I can do my part. One of the things about our culture when we think about illnesses like acute hepatic porphyria, but other dangerous, other rare, other common and dangerous illnesses is that we are very cure focused. I mean, that, that's the language that we use all the time. If you think about, you know, breast cancer fundraisers, things like that, we're very focused on the idea of a cure. Do you think that that is problematic? Uh-huh. I cringe when I when I hear that word. It's gotten to that point with me. Um, 
I think about my own rare disease community, the scientists and the researchers, they're doing so much important work. I don't discount it. And I'm so very grateful. But they're very cure focused. And I feel like if they were really listening to patients, they would hear, that's not what we want. What we want is just to be able to live our lives a little bit easier. I wish that there would be more research into porphyria pain, for instance. It's present in all the eight types of porphyria. And to my knowledge, there's been little to no research done on it. With a a rare disease, and there are so many rare diseases, I can imagine that it feels like a real uphill battle to, to even get research focused on it. Does it feel like that to you? It does. And I... I look at, you know, studies that have been done and I think if they if the researchers would have used a person with this diagnosis or this disability when they designed the study, it would have looked different. It would have produced more usable results. Hmm, interesting. And with your work, you've been focusing on writing for people who are part of this rare disease community, but it strikes me that there's a whole lot that people who don't live with chronic illnesses can learn from your experience and, and from the experiences of others who do live with chronic illnesses. What do you want everybody else to know? Um, I think my my biggest lesson that i've learned that i think would help other people is to be compassionate with yourself i'm working on building my own compassion muscle and that's been a really big focus from the last year or two of my life um but i just think of when we are nicer to ourselves to our body the impact that that has on our lives and on the lives of those around us you talked about encountering doctors who who really didn't take your concerns seriously and left you feeling like what was going on was in your head or or your fault in some way. I can imagine that outside of the medical community, you've also encountered a lot of people who um, dismiss you as as someone who complains a lot or doesn't have a high pain threshold or, or something like that. Has that been part of your experience? I cannot tell you how many times I've had people ask me, oh, have you tried yoga? Mm. So, <laughs> and, and I mean, they might have been trying to be helpful to or they help. probably were trying sure. to be helpful. But I mean, you talk about having compassion for yourself, but we all need to have a lot of more compassion for others. I mean, I that must have hurt so much to have people dismiss your experience out of hand. Yeah, it, it definitely did at first. And now I I give compassion back to them. And I think, you know, you don't know what it's like to live in this body. And I don't want you to have to know what it's like to live in this body because it's not easy. Claire, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and your hard-won wisdom with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Charity. It's an honor. Claire Richmond is a writer, writing for a number of publications. She's also launching her own Substack newsletter. You can find details at daringlyclaire.com. That's Claire with an I, -I C-L-A-I-R-E.com, daringlyclaire.com. And coming up in just a few minutes, we'll talk about another tale of illness. I'll talk with Mary Snyder, who has shared the story of the difficult decisions that one of her friends made that ultimately led to his untimely 
avoid death. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Mary Snyder lost a friend to pancreatic cancer. His death was likely preventable, but he made choices that made it inevitable. Shortly before his death, Snyder's friend asked her to promise to tell his story. And she's fulfilled that promise by writing the book Moose Fart. It's a love story, a story of friendship, a portrait of a free spirit, and an important cautionary tale. And Mary Snyder is with me now. Hello, Mary. Hi, Hi, Charity. Thank you so much for being here. And I, I want to start off by saying that you've changed the name of your friend <laughs> to protect his privacy. So in the book, you call him Steve Hoyt and with the nickname Hoot. Um, you were living in Sioux City when the two of you first met. You are a school counselor, so you were living and working in the Sioux City area. Tell me about uh, when you first encountered Hoot. Well, thank you, Charity. Thanks for having me. I wanted to add to prostate cancer, not oh, pancreatic. Oh, prostate. I'm so yep, sorry about that. that. That's okay. Um, yeah, we first met on the racquetball court at the local gym. And uh, I had just bought my first house in the Sioux City area. And I walked in one morning after um, a racquetball game. And I thought, man, it's hot in here. And I had checked the air con- the thermostat and saw, man, it's it, air conditioning obviously is not working and since I had just bought my first house, I really didn't know who to call for these kinds of things. And Steve was, um, uh, I knew that he owned a few apartment buildings and did handyman kind of work. So um, I only knew him as Hoot. So I had to make a few phone calls to figure out who what his real name was. And then went to actually the old white pages in, in the old-fashioned phone book. Um, this was in 1999 and called him and just asked for his opinion of who I could call, and he said, oh, I'll come over and take a look. And that was the beginning. And he uh, was a, a real free spirit. He was a, <laughs> an, an independent person. He worked for himself, and he had clearly created a life where he could really take advantage uh, of that independence. And that was something that I, I sensed that you admired from the, the very first encounter. I did, yep. He, he just was kind of a... Um, as you say, a self-made man, and he was very confident and could could do anything he put his mind to, and, and that was attractive. You and he started spending more time together, and he you loved to travel, he loved to travel, mm-hmm. so pretty quickly he came up with this idea that the two of you would take a long journey <laughs> out west together on his motorcycle. Tell me about that idea. Yeah, so we knew we both liked to travel. Um, I had brought up that my my dream house was a log cabin, and he said, really, that's my dream house. And so um, talking about cabins and talking about um, our love of travel, we decided that we were going to take this one crazy trip where you just get on the the motorcycle and you you just ride your bike west and turn around when you get tired. And so that's what we did. And Uh, found some places for log cabins along the way. So we kind of started a list of places where that could possibly happen. All right. So the the two of you were were really building a dream together at that point. We were, yes. Early on in your relationship, you experienced a medical crisis. Tell me what happened. 
Yeah, so I was having a lot of pain in my right hip, and I had to quit playing racquetball because I just it, it just was really aggravating. And it turned out that, uh, long story short, I needed spinal surgery um, for spinal stenosis, which is a narrowing of the spine, so your nerves get compromised in there. And that changed things quite a bit. And the surgeon at that time said, Mary, I, I can do the surgery, but I've got an unusual recovery for you. He said, I, I don't want you to sit for one month. How and do you how do you not <laughs> sit for a month? It can be done. Um, <laughs> he said, you can sit for um, a short meal or a bathroom usage. But he said, other than that, I want you to to lay down, to walk. You can walk as much as you want. I found that by kneeling at a table, you're really about the same height as sitting at a table. So when friends would come over just to visit and help with some moral support, um, I think it made them a little uncomfortable But I, the, the, when I would kneel at a table. But the whole idea is to keep your back straight. And the surgeon, when I had asked, you know, this is a crazy recovery <laughs> suggestion, why would I do that? And he said, your, your spinal cord is like a rubber band. He said, well, think of it as a rubber band. And it, when it's relaxed, it's loose and easy, but he said when it's stretched, like when you sit, it stretches out. And he said, what I'm going to do is repair a, a weak spot on that rubber band. And if you can avoid putting tension on that rubber band by sitting, that uh, the stitches that I put in and that whole area that I re repaired is going to recover so much better. And he said, you will have very little scar tissue and you'll reap the benefits of that for the rest of your life. And by going through that intense recovery period, you were actually able to get on a motorcycle and <laughs> yeah, actually, ride across half the country? About 10 days later after the, the month was over and I went back to the, the surgeon and he said, you did a great job. He said, you should be good to go. And wow. and then Hoot said, uh, Doc, we've kind of been thinking about this trip for a long time. And um, the doctor, the surgeon turned and looked at him and said, what kind of bike are you driving or riding? And and who said a uh, Honda Goldwing 1800 or 1500 at that time, and and the doc kind of patted Hoot on the back and he said, "Have a great trip." Because <laughs> that's a pretty sweet bike. It is. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Uh, he had Harley. He had a Harley as well, but he, for this trip, we were taking the Honda Goldwing, and um, he, the the surgeon kind of wagged his finger in front of Hoot's face and said, "But Mary had major surgery, and she's going to have to stretch, and she hasn't sat for a month, so." We took a lot of little breaks in there so I could stretch, but actually it worked out okay. Your ordeal with that surgery and, and the fact that you turned to your doctor and got great medical advice and, and obviously followed it to a T and were able to recover really well, that also demonstrated for you a, a real difference between uh, really a life philosophy for you and Hoot. He was really dismissive <laughs> of what the doctors were telling you, wasn't he? Yeah, he was not a fan of doctors. Yeah. Tell me more about that. What What did he say about doctors and, and really modern medicine? Yeah, he, he called it the sick care system. And I said, you mean the health care? And he said, no, they don't care about health. They, don't, they make money when you're sick. Um, Anyway, he had not been to, but when I first met him and when I was telling him about my, my hip concern, and he he said, well, I suppose you could go to a doctor. You have insurance. Of course, I was working um, in a school system, so I had health insurance. And I said, well, don't you have insurance? And then I realized he's self-employed, and that's probably a little more expensive, and that's what he said. He said, no, nah, I don't have health insurance. I haven't seen a doctor for like 10 years. He said, oh. I'll probably have a problem someday, but I'll take care of it when it happens. And I said, well... 
what about a dentist? Nope, haven't seen a dentist for 10 years. And as time moved on and as he started to have some health problems and I noticed some concerns in the way he was moving and acting and suggested, you know, maybe you should go see a doctor. And, oh, no, I'm fine. I just need to stretch. I need to move more. I need to get more active. I need to not eat, what, pork rinds or (laughs) whatever. Um, And he was very dismissive of that until um, it finally came time that he couldn't walk anymore. And then he crawled into the emergency room and had... um, couldn't couldn't argue the point anymore that he needed help. Well, he couldn't. Um, although, I mean, this is a number of years into your relationship, and there mm-hmm. are a lot of other elements to this story, and also, um, you know, the the fact that he turned out he really didn't like to have serious conversations about much in life, <laughs> and and was really good at at procrastinating on yes. on having those conversations and making difficult decisions. But even when he went to the doctor because he realized he couldn't walk anymore, he really continued to deny the fact that he had cancer. I mean, he could have gotten, even at that point, he could have had a cancer diagnosis earlier than that if he had gone to the doctor. But even at that point, he wanted to deny what the test results were. Yes. So he had gone to, uh, before he went to the ER, he had, had decided that he needed, you know, maybe get things checked out. So he went to the community clinic. Um, and that's where they did a PSA test, which is a blood test of the guy's hormones. And the number um, was 75. And I didn't know what that meant. And he said, well, nine nine or lower, at least at that time, the thinking was that a number of nine or lower is considered healthy. And his was 75. And I said, well, what does that mean? And he said, well, either I have, I forget what it was. It was um, some other problem that could radiate pain to where he was having, or it means I have cancer, prostate cancer. And I just, I said, well, what now? And he said, well, they want to see me back, but I I don't, their tests are wrong. I don't have cancer. I'm fine. And he continued that attitude for a few years. And uh, I guess, and eventually he had a few other procedures done that, that he agreed to, yeah, I'll, I'll have this done. Maybe that'll take care of the pain. And Nothing changed, and his family, his family members, his brothers, and his parents were begging him to go to a doctor, and I was kind of on his case about it, and he said, I'm not going back to the doctor. Well, by that point, he was in his early 50s, and how do you tell, you know, he's making his own decisions. Like, you know, you can't make it for him. Right. Um, I I think we probably all know someone like Steve. Mm -hmm. We all know someone who has a mistrust of medical science who has wants to be able to take care of every problem in their life themselves and and is capable of it up to a point sure um, and as you mentioned this got so serious that it got to the point where he could no longer walk and yep. so he had not only did he have the symptoms that you had pointed out and obviously if he had gone to a doctor then an early diagnosis of prostate cancer, would have likely been very treatable for yes. him. Yes. Um, even later on when he went to the doctor, if he had acknowledged the results of that test and gotten his diagnosis at that point, it's fairly likely that he would have had a treatable cancer diagnosis then too, right? Yes. Um, even at 75, they were very concerned and said, you have prostate cancer, or they suspected he did. Um, and we, you have got to be seen. And he just didn't do anything for the next two years. And by the time um, that he crawled into the emergency room, it was up over, I think, 200. Um, and 
ultimately it ended up that when he had his surgery because he couldn't walk anymore, I'm getting ahead of myself, but when he crawled into the ER, they said um, they had taken some scans, and, they, and at that point his prostate cancer had metastasized into bone cancer, and he had a tumor wrapped around his spine, and that was kind of the beginning of the end. Right, so that's a terminal diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, and the doctor, the surgeon came out and talked to everyone in the waiting room and just shook his head. He said, it didn't have to be like this. And other than this problem, he's a healthy guy, but you, you're, he's not going to beat this. So at that point, he did get treatment for his cancer, and um, his life was extended by four years. Mm-hmm. And he he did a lot of things to extend his life. But you and you were no longer in a romantic relationship at this time, but you were still friends. Mm-hmm. You asked him on a number of occasions, you know, have you made <laughs> arrangements? Have yep. you updated your will? Have you, you know, made sure that your wishes will be followed or even a living will, wishes about how he wanted to be treated in the hospital? How did he respond? Um, like he did with many things is I'll do that later. And there's, there's, there's time for that later. And that was kind of his favorite term. We'll talk about it later. And when I and other friends of his asked about, you know, getting your affairs in order and taking care of stuff, making sure everything that you worked so hard for in all your life goes to the people you want it to go to. And I'm not dead yet. Don't talk about that. And when it's nice out, I want to be out. Or when I'm feeling good, I want to be out in my shop and doing stuff. And when I'm not feeling well, I'm just taking a nap. So I'm I'm not going to spend the time I have to think about things like that. And so he didn't, um, and he did not get his affairs in order. So he asked you to tell his story. Mm-hmm. And he asked you to tell his story as a cautionary tale so that other people didn't make the mistakes that he made, although he was continuing to make some of those mistakes. And mm-hmm. You have shared this story, and in such a a really respectful and lovely way. It's hard in in twenty minutes to <laughs> to share the the nuance. I mean, you clearly admired him, you mm-hmm. loved him, but he made these choices that ended his life, and in the end, meant that he was unable to pass on that amount of wealth that he had accumulated to the people that he loved. I mean, he he absolutely was unable to do the things that he said he wanted to do. He, he put it on a, a Word document on his computer, but it was never notarized. And there was a, a will that predated it. I mean, it's really yes. tragic. So, I mean, in, in telling this story, what do you hope people get out of it? Um, I think Hoot's message was... Uh, <laughs> Get her done. You know, just suck it up. Be a man. Go to the doctor. And if your health is causing you if health if your health is causing you problems, get it checked out. Do it now before it becomes a big problem. It's interesting that you use the phrase "be a man" because I suspect that a lot of the choices that he made he made because he thought he was being a man. He right. was dealing with the pain. He was ignoring the pain yeah. and and getting on with life and taking control, he thought, of of his own health. And yet it would have been so much braver yeah. to you ask know what, for help. A, a phrase I used for him one time, and he was saying, only weak people ask for help, which made me cringe. 
And I just said, you know, I think it takes a strong person to admit they need help. And kind of mulled that over a little bit. You lost a very dear friend, and you tried to help him. Clearly, you tried to help him on numerous occasions. And um, his inability to accept help, I sense, is, is one of the reasons that the two of you didn't stay together in a romantic relationship. Do you, you must think about this. Do you think there's anything you could have done that would have made a difference? I don't. I, I think um, I, I tried everything I could think of. Um, and in the end, he had to make his own decisions. And and I couldn't change that. That must be so frustrating. <laughs> and you've told his story. He wanted it to help other people. Mm-hmm. You want it to help other people. Yes. It's hard to imagine someone with Steve's mindset taking the moral of this story and, and seeking help. Do you feel like it's helping people? I do. Um, I've had a number of people have replied to me after they've read it and said, I know somebody just like this. And I don't think they're going to read the book, but I can, I'm sure going to encourage them, you know, to get help. Um, and I, I'm thinking that I wrote this for men and the women who love them, because perhaps the men that really need to read this aren't going to, but I do think the women in their lives might have some influence. Well, Mary, I hope it helps people. And I'm so sorry for your loss, but I really appreciate your vulnerability in sharing this story. Thank you, Charity. I appreciate talking about this. Mary Snyder. The book is called Moose Fart, and it's the story of her friend Steve, who made some decisions that led to an early death. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.